Welcome to the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, the nation's key nonpartisan policy forum for tackling global issues through independent research, open dialogue, and informing actionable ideas for the policy community. This is a Wilson Center special event hosted by our experts and scholars. Be sure to check out our other media, videos, audio, and podcasts at wilsoncenter.org. Welcome everyone to the Wilson Center, officially chartered by Congress some 50 years ago to, in their words, strengthen the fruitful relation between the world of learning and the world of public affairs. Today I'm joined by the co-chairs of our Global Advisory Council, General David Petraeus and Sir John Scarlett, for the first in our series called Hindsight Up Front, Lessons and Implications of Withdrawing from Afghanistan. Both of these gentlemen are well qualified to help us draw lessons from our 20 years in Afghanistan and the implications of President Biden's recent decision to withdraw nearly all of our forces. General Petraeus, of course, once led CENTCOM, commanded U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan, and later led the CIA. Sir John Scarlett once served as chief of the British Secret Intelligence Services. His tenure was in the midst of our action in Afghanistan. Both men also had sons who served there. Uh, General Petraeus, I'd like to begin with you. First off, uh, thanks to both of you for, for making time for us. Um, not long after President Biden announced his decision, I heard you say that the decision didn't end the war in Afghanistan. It merely ended U.S. involvement in that war. And what do you mean by that? Well, there's been a lot of understandable desire to, quote, end endless wars. And look, no one wants to end endless wars than those who have actually served in them and have experienced what takes place uh, in war and in combat. But I thought it very important to distinguish between ending U.S. involvement in the endless war and ending the endless war, which is not happening. And in fact, I fear that the endless war is going to get much worse, that we will see the onset of a true civil war, millions of refugees, uh, lots of loss of life and bloodshed, uh, damage to infrastructure, and ultimately the return to control of much of Afghanistan uh, to a medieval, theocratic, ultra-conservative uh, Islamist regime, the, the, the Taliban. So that was what I was trying to uh, explain and to recognize the difference again between ending our involvement, which by the way, also our withdrawal of 3,500 troops then necessarily brought about the withdrawal of some 8,000 NATO and non-NATO coalition forces. And perhaps most important of all, some 18,000 contractors who were critical to the maintenance of the Afghan Air Force, which is the most important enabler uh, for soldiers on the ground. And if those soldiers, as you know, Ambassador, if they don't think that somebody is coming to the rescue uh, with additional forces and with close air support and aerial medevac, uh, we shouldn't be surprised if they don't fight as hard as that we would hope them to fight. Uh, and you'll actually see them deserting, slinking away, cutting deals, uh, or just collapsing. And we're seeing some of that in a variety of the parts of Afghanistan, a far-flung country with the Hindu Kush as the spine of it, uh, where this air power is crucially important and the biggest element that we were providing toward the end of our time there, uh, because our forces were not on the front lines, was our enablers, again, principally drones and close air support. So that withdrawal that we are pursuing and is almost complete now, 
results in the withdrawal of all of these other capabilities, which again is going to dramatically limit the Afghan capability to uh, support their forces on the front lines and therefore to defend their control uh, of much of Afghanistan in the face of a Taliban offensive that, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs yesterday acknowledged, appears to have considerable momentum. You know, Sir John, I think that what General Petraeus touched upon is really important. You know, uh, American media is American media and focuses on the American side of things. And I think people have lost sight of just how many coalition forces have served and, and were serving as of recently in Afghanistan. A, a large number, in fact, more than twice as many U.S. troops. Well, uh, uh, thank you, Ambassador. And uh, yes, of course, uh, what uh, General Petraeus is saying is uh, is directly relevant uh, to the particular uh, way in which uh, the UK and uh, European allies uh, are looking um, at this. Um, as a reminder, you know the, the total number of uh, British uh, military deaths in uh, Afghanistan over the 20 years. Uh, was 457 to be precise, and so just under 500. Um, and um, with, um, uh, I think, you know, tens of thousands of deployed troops have gone through uh, one way um, or another. And there have been very significant deployments, military deployments, of course, by the NATO complex generally. And that was the point was made by General Petraeus and France and, and Germany, certainly uh, there um, as, as, as well. So, of course, there, you know, there's bound to be a difference between the way you see the reaction to this uh, across Europe, maybe, maybe the UK is slightly different, and uh, and the US, because this is a US decision. And that, of course, is one point straight away. It's not clear to me exactly how much consultation there was with uh, major allies before the decision was actually taken. Now, of course, in a way, it's been expected because it's been the policy to withdraw as part of the negotiated agreement with, um, with the, the Taliban under the previous administration. But there's clearly, you know, just generally, particularly in Afghanistan, but also really across Europe, quite a degree of surprise uh, that this has happened at this you know, particular moment. Um, and so that creates um, uncertainty. It hasn't had the high level of sort of political debate and statements. Um, in fact, it's been quite striking that that isn't the case by and large um, uh, across Europe, but maybe a certain feeling of inevitability at the end of the day um, about it. Uh, but many of the um, issues of unease, which the general has pointed out, are, are there also in them. Um, I mean, obviously that reflects uh, the serious level of our involvement over so many years, is the fact that um, the consultation uh, amongst allies, where this has been such an important, long-standing allied venture, and the minimal, um, the limited consultation, of course, um, you know, is going to leave um, a mark. But then there are all the things to worry about. There's the, the the question of the commitment to the Afghan society and Afghan population, and we can discuss that. Of course, a particular issue of evacu evacuees. I've been hearing quite a few stories about how difficult some of those conversations are inside um, Afghanistan and in, in Kabul. Um, and of course, uh, the, the major uh, worry about, well, you know, we stay, we went in to stop and crush the terrorist activity, which by and large we've done, but about that, what about it coming back? And I've yet to meet anybody who is confident that it won't come back. Uh, 
So I, I'm describing a, a scene of unease day by day. President Biden was very careful when he announced his decision not to declare mission accomplished. In fact, in response to a question, he said it wasn't a mission accomplished moment. And yet he did say that part of the reason for withdrawing is that the goals from 2001 that were laid out were met. Justice was brought to Osama bin Laden in, in the words of the White House and that they did degrade the terrorist threat. Uh, so isn't it reasonable then for President Biden to say, OK, we met those goals, time to leave and hand this over? Well, all of that, I think, is accurate. Uh, the problem is that I think one of the biggest lessons that we will relearn from this particular episode and that we should have learned from the past 20 years of war with Islamist extremists uh, is that you can never truly put a stake through the heart of the movement. Uh, you can indeed bring individual leaders to justice as we did. In fact, I was the commander in my final months as the commander in Afghanistan when our Joint Special Operations Command and CIA conducted the operation to bring Osama bin Laden to justice. But we should always recognize that these organizations, these movements continue. And tragically, there are still individuals who are attracted by this uh, extremist interpretation uh, of uh, the Muslim faith. Um, something that only a tiny, tiny fraction of a very large uh, religious movement embrace. but those that do uh, are willing to conduct uh, truly barbaric acts uh, in its name. So clearly, as, as Sir John noted, Al-Qaeda will come back. They will reestablish a sanctuary. They've tried to do that. Again, we went to Afghanistan for a reason, to eliminate the sanctuary in which Al-Qaeda planned the 9-11 attacks and conducted the initial training of the attackers under Taliban control of much of the country. We stayed for a reason, and that was to prevent them from reestablishing that sanctuary. And also, by the way, an important and often overlooked uh, mission that we had, which was to provide the platform uh, for the regional counterterrorist campaign. Of course, what we were doing, as an example, when we got Osama bin Laden and pursued other extremists in that region, particularly in the mountainous areas of Western Pakistan, um, we didn't go there to nation build. Uh, we had to do some nation building if you're going to counter an insurgent movement such as the Taliban. Uh, we didn't go there to enable girls to go to school as laudable as that has been and as tragic as its end is very likely uh, going to uh, come under Taliban rule. But without question, extremist groups will be back. And of course, the Islamic State now has the Khorasan group that it, an affiliate of the Islamic State that is operating in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region, they will seek to establish a sanctuary as well. We will have to keep an eye on that. The president and the administration have been very clear about the intent to do that. But make no mistake about the difficulties, the challenge and the extraordinary cost of providing drones and close air support and uh, precision munitions and so forth from bases in the Gulf states. It can take seven to eight hours to fly from a base in Qatar or uh, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, because of course you can't go the most direct route across Iran. You have to go out at, over the Arabian Sea and up over Southern Pakistan to go in. And again, you're going to use up an enormous amount of this very precious dwell time, as it's called, just getting there and getting back. 
uh, and for the strike aircraft or the other manned uh, aircraft that are going to be used overhead in Afghanistan to ensure that we keep tabs on the extremists and do continue to disrupt and degrade their capabilities as they reestablish sanctuaries, that is going to require an extraordinary tanker fleet uh, just to keep them in the air a uh, sufficient amount of time to do what it is that's going to be necessary. So uh, this is going to be very, very challenging as well. And then, of course, you know, there's one other issue that we really should touch on, and that is the seeming lack of planning until recently uh, for how to discharge the moral obligation that we have to the battlefield interpreters who, if they spent two years on the ground sharing risk and hardship with our soldiers, uh, qualified to apply for a special immigrant visa along with their family members. There are as many as 18,000 of them so we're waiting for this process to move forward times two or three family members each. There is now the announcement of a, a modest plan that's going to bring some of these individuals to Fort Lee, Virginia. Uh, but that, that effort needs to be accelerated very, very dramatically, especially given how rapidly the security situation is deteriorating in Afghanistan. Uh, so, John, it, a question, I guess, for you. Uh, and something that General Petraeus touched upon, and that's uh, refugees. Uh, obviously, as we see the movements that are taking place now in Afghanistan, uh, some people are going to bolt, understandably. They, they recognize the curtain that is descending upon them, and they're likely to head to Pakistan or to your neck of the woods and to Europe. What's the view from Europe on this? <laughs> Well, again, the view as such at the moment is not very well uh, developed um, in terms of the immediate impact on at least Western uh, Europe, you know, just to pick that up. This is a story which is going to develop um, uh, you know, as it goes. I mean, on the particular point about interpreters, and we say interpreters, but it's not just interpreters. It, it's a whole lot of people who have been supporters, have been workers, working in offices, um, have been associated in one way or another uh, with um, allied forces. And uh, they're all, of course, feeling vulnerable. And we talk about um, the planes that are bringing them out and, uh, and their arrangements. I mean, obviously, the Fort Lee case, but other, uh, other cases and what's happening, people coming to the UK as well. But let's be clear, then not everybody is going to be able to come out. Uh, there are going to be even people who've been working you know, with you who are not going to be able to come out. And, and, and that's, that's just the start, if, if you like, uh, then, then Beyond that, uh, well, at the moment, who can say? Uh, the, the impact on urban society, uh, on everything that's developed over the last 20 years, um, in the medical profession, uh, within the media, within the legal side, I mean, all sorts of areas of life, urban life, if you like, <laughs> and of course, very much, absolutely, fundamentally, involving women, um, as well in their place in society, um, assurances are coming from the Taliban, but again, I've yet to meet anybody who really believes in any of them. Uh, the, um, so it could be, and who knows how, there'll be tens of thousands, of a very, very large number of refugees, uh, clearly, um, going into particularly, initially, Pakistan, also going into Iran, um, uh, very uh, possibly, of course, going into Central Asian states, and so on. And, um, and then, of course, from there, um, who quite knows uh, where they go. But the immediate issue is for the neighbouring states. And however uncomfortable most of them, or many of them, have been with the US and NATO presence in Afghanistan, 
they're visibly uncomfortable now at the prospect of it leaving um, so so quickly. So you know this is um, a, a very big issue. And I just make the point of also picking up and finishing off maybe what General Petraeus was saying. Uh, the point about the return of terrorist activity and extremist activity is an absolutely key point, and it is not possible to know, you know how quickly that will happen, in what numbers and how quickly they can reform. But there's obviously a risk of the, not just the groups already inside the country, but also coming back from Iran and coming back from Pakistan uh, that, um, that, is, um, that is there. And, um, uh, and the, the fact is that there, are, there is a cordial relationship between um, the Taliban and, um, and Al-Qaeda. Um, I mean, it's difficult for me to go into detail, but it's clearly there. Um, so let me um, let me pose this question to both of you. You know, I, again, I, I think our media has portrayed the decision that was teed up as should I stay or should I go? And really, and I served on the Afghan study group that produced the, the report, is that there was another path, that uh, there is a modest troop presence, has been a modest troop presence there over the last year, but they weren't actively engaged in fighting, they were actually providing uh, support. And so it, it isn't necessarily should I stay or should I go, it's whether or not we were willing to maintain a modest presence there to help uh, continue to build capacity and, and, and manage risks, I guess. So General Petraeus, you know, you said some time ago when you were going through a confirmation that uh, victory in Afghanistan wasn't possible and wasn't really the objective, but managing our presence there uh, really was the objective, and that was something that was sustainable and, and could, in fact, be accomplished. No, exactly right. In fact, in more recent years, I have argued for what I've termed a sustained, sustainable commitment. Sustainability is measured in terms of blood and treasure, uh, sustained because you have to keep pressure on uh, extremist groups. Again, the big lesson of the past 20 years is that you, if you withdraw and declare victory and go home, they will be back. And so instead, what you have to do, especially in cases where you can't, quote, win, where victory is not uh, possible, you have to manage it. And the way to manage it is to get to the smallest, most affordable, in terms of blood and treasure, uh, presence and capability that we can possibly design. And I would have contended that we roughly had that uh, with the form of 3,500 troops, 8,000 uh, coalition forces, many thousands of contractors and so forth, that this was more than affordable. Uh, there were, as you noted, we haven't had a battlefield loss in, I think it's actually a year and a half now, some will say because of the deal with the Taliban. I'd point out we're not on the front lines. Uh, so how are they going to cause those casualties? Um, now, the Afghans have been fighting and dying for their, their, their country for a number of years uh, and were really very aggressive in doing that, particularly as long as our air power uh, and other capabilities were just over the horizon in Afghanistan, not over the horizon in the Gulf states. Um, and that's what we were providing. So again, I think the big idea here is that when you're dealing with Islamist extremists, um, you have to continue to keep focus on them, to keep pressure on them, to continue to disrupt, to degrade. If, it's, if you can, certainly completely resolve the issues that have led to them 
being able to uh, establish a presence and play on certain uh, motivations and emotions and all the rest of that. But barring that, and it's going to be barring that, particularly in a case like Afghanistan, where of course the uh, headquarters of the major insurgent and extremist groups were outside the country. We literally couldn't put pressure on the Taliban. Uh, they were located, their headquarters and major base, if you will, was located outside Quetta uh, in Baluchistan province of Pakistan. Uh, and, you know, I used to point out to the Pakistanis, there's a reason the Taliban leadership is called the Quetta Shura. They're in your country, right near the capital of your province of Baluchistan. And unfortunately, they could never bring themselves to eliminate that possibility on their soil. Same with the Haqqani movement. Uh, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, Al-Qaeda, and a variety of others which are in the tribal areas uh, in the western mountainous part of their country. So again, in a situation like that, recognize, and I told Congress as well, we wouldn't be able to do in Afghanistan what we did in the surge in Iraq, which was to drive violence down by 85%, promote reconciliation between Sunni and Shia, bring the country back together, give it an extraordinary new opportunity. That was not going to be possible in Afghanistan. What we could do, though, was continue to achieve the objective that we were staying in Afghanistan to accomplish, which is to prevent al-Qaeda and then more recently the Islamic State from reestablishing sanctuaries on Afghan soil under this very Islamist regime, the Taliban, and also to put pressure on them as much as we could, uh, given political and diplomatic challenges in that regard on them in uh, Western Pakistan in particular. Uh, Sir John, uh, obviously this decision was driven uh, out of Washington, D.C., but we all understand that uh, Americans uh, certainly don't want endless wars, and I can't imagine that the British or Europeans do either. What's been the reaction publicly to the withdrawal and um, young men and women in uniform returning home to Britain and elsewhere as a result? A very good question. I, it, it's quite limited, I think. Um, you know, I'm, this is, you know, fundamentally, this is a, so a US-led situation. And I'm not even sure that it's fully understood in the, across the sort of wider public opinion personal view here, uh, that we just under a thousand British troops have been um, stationed there until you know, now and are having to come back now. And of course, uh, this is now getting attention, uh, but maybe not as much um, as, it, as it might do. Uh, there is, I have to say, I think, quite a wide understanding or, un yes, understanding, um, and I think here probably this is true for, um, for France, Germany, and so on, as well as the UK, uh, that in, there is a there was a, a, a clear risk that um, staying in the country, particularly after the deal, you know, um, with um, with the Taliban last year, staying beyond that agreed date, um, of course, increased the risk or made it more likely that there would be Allied deaths, U.S. deaths. Uh, and, you know, a renewal of deliberate attacks um, on a significant scale um, against the Allied forces by, uh, by the Taliban. And there you get into this whole issue of, well, you know, what's sustainable, what isn't sustainable, uh, endless wars and, and so on. Now, I'm not a military commander um, like General Petraeus, and it's uh, very difficult for me to make a sort of really considered judgment about what is a sustainable uh, presence. Uh, but I, 
it seems quite reasonable uh, to put it in the way that he's putting it and to say, well, you know, the scale at which we were operating um, more or less could be sustainable. And we would just have to put up with the higher risk to some degree um, of the um, attacks that we were talking about. And of course, to pull out in the face of the attacks, and it's like admitting defeat, and so there's that problem uh, too. Um, I think there is a, an underlying problem here, which I don't see debated very much, um, uh, in certainly in, in our sort of political spectrum or media and so on, which is this use of language. Um, and I've said this before in other discussions, that the, the, the basic language of forever wars and well, maybe it's because I speak for a country which used to be, but is no longer a colonial power. Um, and for never-ending wars or forever wars, I mean, that's something which, you know, history is full of that. And, and uh, what we're talking about here is we need to be careful about the use of the word war. Uh, we're talking here about a campaign uh, of some kind or another, or, or you know, on, on that kind of scale, that kind of level. Uh, and most importantly, of course, is that we're talking about numbers that 15,000 contractors, um, which is you know, slightly different point, uh, but absolutely crucial to maintaining the military capability, the air capability of the Afghan forces and the consequences of the withdrawal there of 15,000 or 18,000 and all, all these zeros. <clears throat> uh, um, you know, that's, um, that's all part of the debate. So it's part of a a wider feeling maybe of unease um, and now an increasingly sort of clear perception or increasing perception that we could be facing really something very difficult in the next few weeks and particularly difficult of yeah. course for the local population. So at the Wilson Center, we're all about lessons and trying to draw lessons from what's taking place. So Sir John, I'll begin with you for uh, uh, young men and women who are going into a career in intelligence, in the intelligence services, what lessons do you think they should draw and will draw from what's taking place right now in Afghanistan? I think the, the sort of basic one, um, young people, young whatever, you know, there are so many things that they have to learn, and this is one among so many things, there's so many challenges which they, they face, but maybe the first one is that uh, particularly looking at it from a younger generation point of view, I don't think you think, oh, well, Afghanistan is far away. You know, it's not something we necessarily have to worry about because in the world that we know now, nowhere is far away. Uh, every, you know, something can happen in one country and impact on, on us or our interests somewhere else. After all, you know, we're talking about so many other issues, um, including, you know, the... Uh, Indo-Pacific and great power competition and so on. Well, what is one of the, the biggest country which is next has a border with Afghanistan? It's called China, and then that, that immediately brings all those issues in. And so it's not just young people who would um, who would think that, but you know it's a natural way uh, of thinking. Um, and so that's one lesson uh, we need to sort of be careful about that and, and understand the way the world is changing uh, very uh, fast. Uh, another one is, of course. Uh, very much this is going to reinforce a, a feeling uh, that you, know, you may go in to a particular situation, a particular country in Afghanistan in 2001, you know, one specific objective, which is to, you know, destroy terrorist capability after it's attacked you. Uh, but you can't then draw a line and say, right, that's it, we're off. Because inevitably, 
it's uh, yet another example, and of course it's also been there in Iraq. You get you get drawn into, you know, well, if, if you change the government in a country like Afghanistan, um, it, it inevitably, you know, you get drawn into the rebuilding of society, the rebuilding of structures, the rebuilding of governance. And that's not just true for Afghanistan. Just think about what we're seeing now in, in Sahel, in, in Africa, and, and thinking that through. So that's a fundamental lesson uh, that is there, uh, that you can't draw a line which happens to suit you and then pull out again, you're taking on those responsibilities, uh, just inevitably. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll stop there, but those- Well, those I, I was gonna say, uh, you, you brought up the, uh, the other term that gets thrown around, the other name that gets thrown around, China. What lessons do you think China draws from what's going on now in Afghanistan? Well, okay, um, uh, I'll make a quick uh, personal comment and then General Petraeus will come, come in. Um, well, the first one, of course, I'm afraid, is that uh, uh, they'll wonder uh, about US sustainability and uh, commitment um, in the medium to longer term when uh, we're looking at uh, US involvement in whatever country or whatever situation we might be foreseeing um, into the future. You know, there's obviously an issue for not just for the US, but for the Allies. Um, of credibility here, which you know, we've really got to think through uh, very carefully. Otherwise, they'll be looking at the situation and say, well, okay, how do we manage it? Um, how do we manage the situations to, to limit our own exposure, but all the same to promote our interests? And I'm sure that's what we'll see them do. General Petraeus, China, what lesson should China draw? Well, the U.S. will try very hard. We've seen the president already try very hard to say that, look, this has no bearing on our willingness to commit forces in the Indo-Pacific region together with allies and partners to carry out a comprehensive, a coherent, comprehensive uh, whole of governments uh, approach to China. And make no mistake about it, I agree fully that the most important relationship in the world is that between the U.S. and China and that we should do everything humanly possible to make that as mutually beneficial as is possible. But also, as a former spy master, if you will, uh, you have to look at this through a cold, hard lens, which tells you that this relationship has become more competitive and a bit more confrontational um, with each passing month over the last couple of years in particular. So what we're seeking to do, as always, is to prevent this from becoming a kinetic exchange from real uh, conflict, real physical conflict, war, if you will. Um, and when it comes to that, deterrence uh, is a function of an adversary's perception of your capabilities and your willingness to employ that capabilities. So what does the seeming inability to maintain 3,500 troops uh, in Afghanistan say about our willingness, our will, or in the adversary's perception of that will uh, when it comes to deterrence in the Indo-Pacific. And I think that's something that, again, I know the administration is concerned about that. They have gone to great lengths to explain uh, that that has no bearing on this. But just as when we had the red line that was not the red line in Syria, and I was out in the Asia-Pacific region, I remember a leader of a country telling me, General, don't think that the uh, action that was taken or inaction uh, after a red line was crossed uh, by Bashar al-Assad's forces in Syria, that, that that doesn't have a bearing on the situation out here. And I think that indeed everything is connected uh, in the world and that we have to go to great lengths uh, indeed to show that, again, our 
seeming, again, lack of determination uh, and staying power in Afghanistan should not be misinterpreted uh, in the South China Sea or, or, or some other potential location of conflict. Uh, indeed, I think that one of the big overarching lessons of all of this is that a superpower has to keep many plates spinning at one time. The biggest of those plates right now, without question, perhaps bigger than all the other plates, is that which does represent the U.S.-China relationship, given how important it is not just to our two countries, <clears throat> but to the entire world. But the fact is we also have to keep a lot of other plates spinning. We have to continue to worry about Iran, uh, nuclear North Korea, Russia, uh, cyber threats, and indeed Islamist extremists that are still out to uh, carry attacks uh, to our allies and partners uh, and to our homeland. Now, I don't think it will be the kind of near-term threat uh, if Al-Qaeda is able to reestablish a sanctuary in Afghanistan that will visit another 9-11 on our soil. And I also think our intelligence capabilities and even processes and organizations have changed dramatically for the better uh, since uh, the intelligence failure, really, at the heart of the 9-11 attack. Um, that said, though, you still have to keep all these other little plates spinning. And among those, I would have hoped would have been, uh, again, a very modest, sustained, sustainable uh, effort in Afghanistan. Uh, but clearly that has proven not to be the case. Uh, again, I fear that this is a decision that we are going to come to regret uh, and, and perhaps regret deeply. Uh, and I fear that it may be that we regret it deeply sooner than I had even feared would be the case. I hope I am wrong on that. I hope that millions of refugees don't emanate from uh, Afghanistan as we see this, the onset of uh, heavier and heavier fighting and civil war and ethnic sectarian and tribal strife and so forth. Uh, but I fear that that will be the case uh, and that the sooner that I hope that we assess that and can figure out how to try to help Afghanistan stabilize the security situation that has been eroding so alarmingly uh, in recent weeks and months, the better. Uh, I, uh, please, yeah. please, Sir John. Well, can I just say that I do want to say that obviously faced with this situation, you know, one can find a lot of things to criticize and, and, and be uneasy about, but I am no longer in a position where I take responsibilities and take decisions. And, you know, there's a big difference between the person taking the decision and the person uh, observing it um, on the basis of previous experience. And I've certainly been very impressed by much of the skill and much of the care and much of the thought uh, which has gone into the policy making of the administration. And I you know, absolutely want to be clear um, about that. Um, uh, but I uh, obviously hear you know, there's an immediate challenge. And, and I, I suppose I'd, I'd just um, say three quick things on this. One is that uh, I repeat uh, that somehow if we can avoid talking about forever wars, and life is more complicated than that. If we can avoid talking about faraway places, because as I said, nowhere is far away um, in the modern world. And thirdly, you know, faced with the situation that we're now faced with, um, somehow whatever we can do uh, to contribute to a stabilization, some sort of stabilization and compromise uh, come out or outcome from, um, from the situation in Afghanistan, it really is a tip top priority to try and achieve that. Uh, gentlemen, you've both been very generous with your time. Let me uh, close by asking each of you this question. So the decision is made. 
the withdrawal is underway and happening very rapidly. If President Biden were to ask you for your counsel on what should be done in Afghanistan going forward, beginning next month, what would you say? And, and uh, Sir John, I'll begin with you. Well, um, in a way, I'd follow up what um, I've just been trying to start uh, saying, that I'd be looking for every possible way uh, within in the commitments I've made uh, to continue to provide practical operational uh, support uh, to the brave uh, men and women in the Afghan security forces. Uh, that's, you know, that's uh, and capacity and capability there to keep them in place. And I'd be looking very hard um, at the political leadership uh, within the Afghan government and related to it, uh, just to find uh, people with the ability and the willingness and the understanding to sort of come forward and seek some form of uh, compromise, some kind of negotiation, some kind of arrangement. Uh, I'd, I'd give that, you know, I'd recognise that things, be, I would recognise things become difficult and um, I'd be just looking to, to manage the situation as best I possibly could with the support of close allies. General Petraeus. Well, let me also say that I share Sir John's very high regard for the members of the administration. I served with all of them. Uh, they all spent, almost all of them spent all eight years of the Obama administration government. Many served in, in previous administrations or on Capitol Hill. Uh, they're a uniquely uh, impressive uh, group of individuals. Yes. And by and large, I broadly support uh, much of the foreign policy that is emerging. Again, the effort to establish a comprehensive integrated uh, whole of governments uh, effort when it comes to China and governments with an S on the end. So with all of our allies and partners uh, together, and that is the single most important task uh, of our time. Um, but there are other issues uh, and uh, Afghanistan is one of those. It's one of the few in which I think there has uh, been a decision that we will look back on and, and perhaps wish we had not made. Uh, and if asked at this point, you know, what should we do? Well, certainly we should dramatically accelerate the effort to take care of those who share risk and hardship uh, on the battlefield with our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, uh, as battlefield interpreters. We owe that to them. They spent at least two years uh, on the ground to qualify for a special immigrant visa. Uh, and then beyond that, we have to very, very realistically and, and, and with a very cold eye, look at the rapid deterioration of the situation and ask whether this is desirable um, and if not what can we do uh, to help our afghan national security force partners and the afghan government to stabilize the security situation noting that a good bit of the country particularly the outlying parts uh, have already been con taken control by the, the taliban uh, clearly, it's not in our interest to see them return, which will mean, again, an al-Qaeda and likely Islamic State sanctuary back on Afghan soil. What can we do uh, that can help our Afghan partners? What can we do to help them maintain the Afghan Air Force? And it can't be done, again, over the horizon, flying helicopters out to a Gulf state to be maintained and so forth, and then back in, especially since we've given up the bases in Kandahar and Bagram uh, that were, would be presumably so essential to that kind of effort. So this is a, that's a tough, tough, uh, that recommendation would not be met with applause, understandably, 
because it would be an admission that perhaps this decision was not uh, as wise, was not as carefully planned uh, as may have been uh, the thought uh, when it was actually announced and in the subsequent weeks. Uh, and that's a very difficult situation for a government to be, especially given that the, the focus rightly is on this very, very big consequential relationship that between the United States and China, that should be the focus, that should be what all of our allies and partners are working together uh, to develop uh, and to build. The problem is you do have to keep many plates spinning beyond just the biggest of the big plates uh, if you are a superpower uh, and if you are one of the allies and partners of those superpowers. Can I just quickly say that I didn't yeah. mention, but I absolutely want to mention that support for uh, interpreters and not just for interpreters, but the people who have worked with us closely, that is absolutely fundamental. It's just a moral uh, commitment uh, and everything that could possibly be done to protect them and their families Clearly, we must do. It's certainly something I think all agree with. Uh, gentlemen, you have both offered us great hindsight up front, great lessons from which uh, we hope we can tee up some uh, important moves by policymakers. As I think you've both laid out, this isn't easy. We're at that crossroads moment, and, and the choices are tough ones. But um, uh, you've offered us some great counsel and advice, and and uh, let, let's hope people are, are, are listening. So hindsight up front, uh, thank you to both of you. Uh, thank you for your insights today, but also thank you for being co-chairs of our Global Advisory Council. Very much appreciated. A privilege as always, Ambassador. Thanks and thanks, Sir John. Yes, thank you, General Petraeus, David. Thank you. Afghanistan's future is more uncertain than ever. Implications of the U.S. withdrawal cannot be ignored. The Wilson Center's new initiative, Hindsight Upfront, will keep you informed about the future of Afghanistan, its people, the region, and why it matters. We hope you have enjoyed this Wilson Center special event. This has been a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Be sure to check out more of the Wilson Center's activities, media, and events at wilsoncenter.org.